We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Stop Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Welcome to another episode of Soft Talk Radio. I'm your host, Neil Bradley. With me in the studio today are Pierre, Bonjour, Juliana, and Laura. Hello. Hello. This week we're honored to be speaking with Dr. Anna Salter. She's a world-renowned psychologist who received her PhD in clinical psychology and public practice from Harvard University and who does training, consulting, and publications on sexual abuse Sex Offenders and Victimization. Anna's, Anna's best-selling book will probably be familiar to most of our listeners because we discussed it on our online forum. It's called Predators, and the subtitle really says it all, Pedophiles, Rapists, and Other Sex Offenders, Who They Are, How They Operate, and How We Can Protect Ourselves and Our Children. Welcome, Anna. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to, it's great to be able to talk with you. Um, I'd like to begin by thanking you, first of all, for your hard work. Your book on predators is not an easy read by any stretch. Oh, say that again. It's it, it's required reading. I really think everyone who cares has got to read this book. It's always fine. This is a book that um, wanted to be written. I don't know how to explain that, but I think books sort of, when there's a book to be written, at least this is true for me, it sort of beats at you until you finally write it down. I, it wasn't an easy book to write either, uh, and I appreciate that it's hard to read, but it really, uh, it felt like the things I said needed to be said. And um, I find it uh, horrifying to read, but at the same time fascinating because uh, somehow it's a journey within a psyche that are so foreign to our way of thinking, of feeling, of treating others, that uh, in the end we learn a lot about uh, some kind of subspecies, people who look like human, but obviously at the most fundamental level, they're not really human, they're almost opposite to human. Well, I think the most surprising thing about, let's just say sexual sadists, people who get sexually aroused by torturing other people, is that it seems like almost a reverse empathy. Uh, when, when most of us see someone as being uh, tortured or hurt, we hurt with them. They see the same thing, but they have an opposite emotional reaction. They have a reaction of, of a high, of, in, of enjoying the suffering. And that that's hard for any of us to to, to sort of make sense of. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, well, that's funny you mentioned this part because I wanted. That was the first quote I had uh, under my eyes. You write, "What feels saddest then is not a belief that people are objects," and that's usually the way psychopaths are depicted. And but you go on, but rather it's a kind of reverse empathy, rather than being indifferent to how other feels. 
they are exquisitely attuned to it. So they can read our emotions and they, they can trigger those fear and the suffering and they feed on it. Yes, that's very true. Uh, psychopaths are people who don't have a conscience, but it doesn't make them want to see people suffer. If you get between a psychopath and what he or she wants, um, in you know, in some cases they may beat you to death. And they don't mind doing that. They don't care. But that's not the purpose. The purpose is your checkbook or whatever it is that they were they were trying to get. The really bizarre thing about sadist is the enjoyment of the suffering. Yeah, and uh, something that you mention in your book several times, but that cannot be totally conveyed by your book, is their green, their expression when they remember what they did. And uh, for the listeners, I, I can recommend to watch your video, especially this video about this, um, this rapist who, who said how he prepared his uh, daughter, his, step, her, his stepdaughter, from the age of one to become a... Uh, his object, basically, and the green of those people, the, their, expression, their expression when they remember what were they doing, which are the most horrific thing, but you can see on their face the joy, the, uh, the satisfaction, just by thinking about what they did. Yes. Um, when I, I have a training film on a sadist, who did some pretty horrible things to his uh, stepson. And in the beginning of the film, he has his head down, as, and he's trying to communicate to me how sorry he is and how hard this is to talk about. Then he raises his face, and you see that his pupils are dilated. Well, there were two banks of lights just outside camera range. To, so his pupils weren't dilated because of a lack of light. They were dilated out of interest and enjoyment. And I do find that. I find that the sadists that I've talked to, when they relive the incidents, they, their eyes get dilated and they seem to get very excited. i found with psychopaths, when I talk to them, the narcissism often comes out. And they are just thrilled with uh, what we call duping delight, the fact that they can fool people and get away with it. And, and they light up over that, over the ability to manipulate others. Boy, I have to say, Dr. Salter, that I am kind of in awe to be just talking to you because I have only a remote inkling of an idea of what it must be like to actually have sat in the rooms with such people, to have listened to them, to have talked to them, to have taken on board completely the kinds of things they say and the descriptions of the things they do. So, uh, you know, I do write a great deal about this sort of thing because it's taken me over 10 years to wrap my head around it, to just, you know, hammer it over and over again into my head that there are people who are not uh, benevolent in their core, that, you know, everybody is not created the same. Everybody doesn't want the best for themselves, for their children, for, uh, you know, happiness, a peaceful world and an end to war and everybody to have food to eat, that there are people who are not like that. They don't want that. They don't care about that. And it's been very difficult for me. And during the course of this time, I have encountered many, many people, you know, who have said to me, if you keep looking at the darkness, you know, it will 
that that's the kind of reality you'll create for yourself. And of course, you know, I get very angry about that because I, you know, I say, if I don't tell my children that there's traffic in the street and to stay out of the street, they're going to get killed. You know, so what's the difference if I don't tell my children about predators and, and this sort of thing? You know, so how do you deal with that? That's what I'm getting at. Well, how do you, how do you cope with that? Because for me, reading your book was really, really, um, it was really a tour de force, <laughs> I have to say. How do you deal with it? Uh, well, I, some days I do think it's my mission in life to spread anxiety and depression as far as possible. Uh, and, I, <laughs> you know, I definitely regret that. In, in my mind's eye, and I have no proof of this, but I think of people, let's say empathy versus callousness. I think of it on a normal curve, and there there are people out there who are so much profoundly more empathic than most of us. Mother Teresa, uh, Nelson Mandela, there are people on one extreme, and then most of us are kind of in the middle. And then there are people on the other end who are as callous uh, as now, as Nelson Mandela and Mother Teresa were empathic, and they just exist. They are hard for the rest of us to understand because if you look at, for example, there's some new research on people who have to look at child porn as part of their business, police officers, oh, ICAC members, and, the, and it's a new study that shows the impact on them, and they get depressed, they uh, many of them burn out. Uh, they're exposed to really ugly uh, and sometimes absolutely horrifying uh, images all the time. And it doesn't, uh, what it does is it, they don't get used to it. They start having anxiety symptoms and so forth. So I think most of us uh, don't grasp, can't grasp the people on this other end who get a delight in that, and that's okay that we can't grasp it. But I think what's dangerous is when we pretend they're not there. Uh, and Absolutely. I can't tell you how many reports I've seen of really horrific behavior, like locking a child every night in a cabinet that was under the sink and making them spend the night there. Uh, I had a case uh, recently where they put a child in a basement at age 10 and she weighed, I believe she weighed um, 80, 85 pounds at that point. Five years later when she was 15, she weighed 68. So they systematically starved her over that period of time. We're not going to really understand that. But what really uh, is unforgivable are the number of reports who say things like, oh, the parent lost control or, uh, you know, it was a sudden outburst. No, torture is not an example of someone losing control. You lose control when you backhand a kid because you're angry, not when you systematically starve a kid for, for five years. And that is very dangerous. In our desire to protect our own hearts when we fail to recognize the reality of malevolence, we don't have to understand it, but we do have to recognize it. And Dr. Solder, are you noticing any changes in the in the system when you're in court cases or you know in front of judges? Are they really grasping this, or are they still going on about you know how well they can't be evil 
say, by birth, or they, they can't be born that way. They pro probably, something happened to this father who abused this innocent child and that made him that way. I mean, and they're still getting away because, you know, that's really what, what gets me sometimes, you know, is to see, we've, we have it all the time, even in movies and, and things. I mean, hardly anybody depicts an, a sadist or a psychopath in a realistic way. There's always some kind of childhood trauma that explains it all, and they didn't mean it, and they change it in the end of the movie or whatever, you know. I mean, how are you seeing it in real life with real right. cases? I see it exactly like that. People are meaning makers. We want a story we can understand. When we don't understand something, we just make it up. And so we don't really understand where where some of this comes from. And there are cases like the Austin Zig case where there was no, uh, there simply wasn't any abuse in in his childhood. And, mm -hmm. and millions and millions of people have far more abusive childhoods than he has. So we don't know where this came from. But in the absence of knowing, people try some, many times to minimize the malevolence. We want people to be sorry. We want them to show they're sorry. Mm -hmm. if, they, if they either are sorry or put on a convincing act that they're sorry, then somehow it's uh, better. They should get a lesser sentence, something like that. We, we minimize... Uh, really horrible behavior all the time because it makes us feel safer to not acknowledge the degree of malevolence. I do see it that. It makes us feel safer and we actually are in more danger as a result. Feeling safe and being safe are two different things. It's yeah. been interesting to me how much feeling safe will triumph being safe for people. I remember giving a... a a lecture when I was at Dartmouth Medical School and I was doing a Grand Rounds and I showed some films of sex offenders talking about how they fool people. <laughs> In the middle of it, this OBGYN doc jumped up and said, Anna, what are you saying? What are you saying? How are we supposed to protect our children? Hmm. And and uh, that's, most people really don't want to the world is dicier than people want to admit i'll put it that way dicier is an understatement i think <laughs> and another wrong belief concerning predators and this kind of abuses is that it's only a minority uh, that is affected a minority of the population and uh, from your book we learn that actually uh, according to some statistics it's 50% or a bit less than 50% of the population that is victim of such uh, behaviors. And another figure that I found totally flabbergasting is that on average, offenders have 150 victims. Well, so, the, the, there are studies that show up to 50% have been victimized if you include um, exposure, exhibitionism. But the number of hands-on offenses are lower than that, and the estimates run now between 15 and 30 percent. In general, crime is going down. All kinds of crime have been going down for the last 20 years. All kinds of violent crimes and most forms of nonviolent crimes have been going down. So in general, the society has, has been getting safer as we go along. But it is, it is true that if just not in terms of sexual sadism or psychopaths, but in terms of 
pedophiles and people who molest children, uh, most of whom are not, the vast majority of whom are not sadistic, uh, it, it is true that they have uh, really a large number of victims. The offender I talked to who had the most said he believed he had close to 1,250. Uh, he had operated for over 20 years as a uh, athletic director in a middle school, and he said he had molested four or five different kids a week. And whether you know whether his number was exactly accurate or not, would you feel any better if it was 300 less? You know, you wouldn't. Uh, we have uh, most of the people who molest children molest one or two children, but there is a small group of offenders who have very high numbers. Gene Abel has said he thought that 5% of the offenders uh, uh, committed 70% of the offenses. There's another thing uh, that people think that makes them feel better, they like to think it, and that is that they can tell when somebody is lying. And this is something that you uh, emphasize in your book, that that you can't tell when they're lying. And I would like to ask you, is that even true in the case of, say, uh, polygraph or other, you know, lie detection methodologies? I mean, are, are, are they able to lie their way through anything? No. There are. It is true that the research on lying shows that people are rarely better than 50% unless they've had some very specialized training. And most groups don't ever get above 60%. Well, when you can get 50% by flipping a coin, you have to admit that people without some very specialized training are are really not very good at detecting lies. Unfortunately, they think they can. And the problem is if I ask a group of people, and I do this regularly, what, what are the conventional, what's conventional wisdom about the signs of lying? And they will say, oh, nervousness, they look away, they're... Uh, fidget, okay? Well, no, actually they don't. The research shows the only people you're going to pick up who act like that are newbies. They're people who haven't committed a lot of crimes before and they haven't had a lot of practice. But you're not going to get the real pros at lying by looking for signs of nervousness. First of all, psychopaths are feel duping delight when they lie, and nobody's ever trained that joy can be a sign of lying. But in some individuals, it is. Now, as far as the polygraph, I believe that the polygraph is better than the average person at detecting lying. It's not perfect, for sure, but it's more accurate than than most people are, and it picks up psychopaths as well as it picks up anyone else. And the reason for that uh, may be that they their duping delight triggers the machine. But whatever it is, the reaction that they have <laughs> It's true. It's picked up by the machine, by the you know increased heart rate and uh, the other physiological signs that it measures. Well, that's the first time I've heard it put that way, but that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Well, if you don't feel guilty about what you did, if you don't feel ashamed of it, um, then you're not going to show signs. You don't even have to fake it. You're not going to show signs of embarrassment or shame or guilt because you don't feel it. Yeah. The the answer to a question I have might seem a bit obvious, but, but would it be true to say that the kind of um, sexual sadists and predators that you've written about 
are also clinical psychopaths, and vice versa. Are all psychopaths sexual sadists? Do the two always go together? No, no, no. they don't always go together. Psychopaths uh, pretty much do what they want to do. Uh, if they, a lot of them want money. Uh, a lot of them are check forgers. Some of them are CEOs. No doubt, there's some that are politicians as well. But what the, like the difference in psychopaths <laughs> and other people is. They, they don't care who they hurt. They don't have a guilty conscience to get what they want. That doesn't mean yeah. all psychopaths want to see people suffer. They don't. The sadist, sadist is sexual, well, one, one form of sadism, the, the form that is in the DSM series, is sexual sadism, and they are sexually attracted to the suffering of others. When we catch uh, someone who is, for example, a serial killer, they're almost always psychopathic and sadistic. And the reason for that is if you are have some degree of sadism, some sexual enjoyment of suffering, what the average person does who is not a psychopath is they join an S&M club and they make arrangements with another person for exactly what's going to happen and what the, the word is that will stop the whole thing and so forth. So they get someone who wants to be, uh, who is masochistic, essentially. But the ones we catch don't want the person to enjoy it or to be consenting, and they want to do things that are so extreme that no one would consent. That's why when you catch them, they are often psychopaths and sadists, but the, the two do not always go together. Okay. But part of the reason I, I asked that question is, you have a description, I think it's on the chapter specifically dealing with sadists, and your description of their, you're explaining that no, for them, the child or the other person is not an object, it's not as simple as saying they're an object, otherwise they'd go and do something to a tree. No, they're actually in it because you described it as they're engorging on the emotions, the negative emotions okay. of the victim. Okay. And what struck they me are. is that I've, I've read that, sort of description before and it's about psychopaths like a CEO when he's doing that over hundreds of employees or it could be a politician doing it over thousands of people that description seems to fit the kind of enjoyment that they might get from what they um, do for most of them the enjoyment is in the money or the winning if they have to lay off 7,000 people they don't care about it but they don't uh, lay off 7,000 people just because they want to make people suffer. They lay off 7,000 people because it is of some benefit to them, generally yeah. monetary. Okay, the consequence of their actions. The consequence, and they don't really care about the consequence. They'll buy companies, tear them apart, uh, you know, lay off people, fire people. It's just, they just don't care about that. What they care about is the is winning and the yacht that that they have and so forth. So it's instrumental. Instrumental. Psychopaths are very instrumental. They're known for instrumental aggression over emotion-based aggression. Uh-huh. You write in your book to go along this uh, this topic. Why does it take thirty years of research for the rest of us to understand phenomena? that inmates grasp intuitively. It seems clear who the real experts are. Can you expand on this uh, idea of 
our psychopaths or inmates have this very acute, very sharp grasp of human psychology? Well, it is interesting. At one point I was interviewing inmates who had compromised more than one staff member. So I actually interviewed one inmate who was running four staff members at the same time. He had uh, one, some, uh, an officer was bringing in, uh, brought in a cell phone for him. He had alcohol in his cell. Um, He had illegal protein supplements for his weightlifting, and he was having sex with another officer. And none of, actually, I think the sex was with the librarian. But uh, none of these people knew about the other. Uh, and now, when I read, when I talk to him about the seduction process and how he compromises staff, then I may go to another inmate at another institution who has compromised several staff, and it sounds exactly the same. It, it, and I'll talk to three or four. Well, they're not necessarily talking to each other. And it always is a mystery to me how well some of them read people and know just what the weaknesses are. Can you describe it? Pardon? Can you describe what they do? I mean, his description of the seduction process? Well, the thing that surprised me that they all pretty much all say is it never starts with the inmate asking for something. It starts with the inmate doing a favor for the staff. Uh, So, for example, uh, the inmate will uh, give them information Tell them who's dangerous and who isn't. Tell them which situations are dangerous or they're not. Set themselves up so that the staff member is relying on them. Uh, And they all talk about that. Now, they may, you know, let me clean your office. I'm doing the hall anyway. And the guy does your office. He didn't do a good job. Or if they're a copy clerk, let me me copy that extra stuff for you. I, I don't have anything to do. They do this because in every culture that has been studied, there's an unwritten rule. Uh, And the rule is that if someone does something nice for you, then you owe them. Mm -hmm. So the the second part of it, or or the next part of it, is that then they ask for something back. But it's going to start out being very, very small. It has to be small because it has to get under the radar. So they can't ask anything big. They can ask for an extra pencil. They can ask for a French fry if a staff member is eating McDonald's. Hey, man, give me a give me a fry. But then you have the staff member feeling like they owe this person who has done something nice for them. And what's the harm? It's just a very little thing. And then it builds from there. And you know, after the staff member has done something really incriminating, uh, taken a letter out for them or brought something in for them, then they, then all of the niceness stops. They own the staff member at that point, and the staff member isn't asked anymore. The staff member gets told what to do. Wow. And actually, um, what you describe in your book is that those people, while they do those nice things, they give those presents, they say those nice words, they smile. Actually, all that is an act, part of a, a premeditated plan. 
Yes, in the case of the psychopaths, I'm obviously not saying that every inmate is psychopathic. I'm obviously not saying that every inmate, when they smile, is being uh, false. I'm talking about a narrow group of inmates, probably between 10 to 20% of the prison population that score as psychopathic. And for that group of inmates, uh, what I learned from interviewing them was that it was preplanned from the very first conversation. Uh, they might say something like, you start a conversation and then, hey, hey man, what were you doing before you were here? Okay? Now, that sounds like an innocuous question, oh, I was in this other prison, or I, wh- I wasn't a correctional officer, I was working outside, you know, whatever. They don't care what you answer at that point, because the point of the question is not to get information, it's to see if you'll talk about personal matters. And 201, they said if they would talk about personal matters, they could be, uh, they could be as they put it, worked with. Wow. And they do that with you, I imagine, when you interview them? Oh, it's almost funny. At the, uh, at the end of one interview, the guy said, um, I checked up on you, and I was told that you were uh, very professional, very good at what you do. You can almost roll your eyes because he's just been telling me how he manipulates staff with flattery. God. Uh, and then another one said, <laughs> well, why do you make it? Why do you make films? And I said, I like to make educational films. You know, that the best answer is a non-information answer. And he said, Yeah, but why? He leans back and puts his hands behind his head and says, Why? And it, you know, what can you say at that point? I mean, I am, uh, I am always very uh, polite and respectful for when I interview offenders because how we treat people has to do with who we are doesn't have to do with who they are. So we treat Ted Bundy the same as you treat anybody else because of who we are. So I didn't say, for Christ's sakes, you're trying to con me, you know? But it was, uh, I did say, I did say, you know, I appreciate your uh, trying to give me an example of your work. I appreciate that. (laughs) But in my head I was thinking, Thinking hubris, hubris, hubris. I'm not a potted plant. I've listened to you for three hours talk about how you manipulate staff, and the first step is to get them to talk about something personal. You know, this is wait a week for Christ's sakes. You're doing it in the same interview. Jesus, that's crazy. But, but Dr. Salter, chances are it has worked with another psychologist before, right? Chances are very good that it's worked. But, you know, the reason I. I think that's so strange when they do it is because the other psychologist wasn't interviewing them about deception techniques, <laughs> you know? Uh, well, and even when you interview them about this, uh, and they just told you their deception techniques, it's remarkable how uh, narcissistic they are, many of the psychopaths are, and how they think it will work on you anyway. Wow. Well, let me ask you, um, Considering the notorious uh, well, lack of uh, reliability of psychopathic self-report, um, how do you get them to talk to you as freely as they do? Well, not all will, of course. And when I view interview offenders, I always wait until after the appeals are over, if I can, you know, if I'm doing it for uh, educational purposes. And I find that the offenders 
because nobody tells you anything while they're still appealing the case. But I find that the offenders who talk the most freely to me are the psychopaths because they're not ashamed of what they've done and they never get a chance to tell people uh, just how clever they are. And narcissism Mm. is the Achilles heel of the psychopath. If you want to interview them, narcissism is Achilles heel. Bob Hare, who originated, or perhaps not originated, but who has developed the concept of psychopathy uh, in this century more than anybody else, uh, Bob Hare tells a story of giving a training, and two detectives were there from a West Coast city. They uh, had come to the training because they had a guy who they knew had killed two women, but they thought he had killed more than that. And they couldn't get him to fess up to it. And they were saying things uh, to him like, uh, you know, the families need closure and all of that. Well, of course, that's exactly the wrong tactic with a psychopath. According to uh, Dr. Hare, after the training, the the officers told him later that they looked at each other and said, we're barking up the wrong tree. So they went back and said to this guy, you know, Bundy had... 35 you only have two he ended up you know he ended up taking them to the graves it's narcissism you're never going to get anything out of a psychopath by by asking them uh, to feel sorry or guilty or to help the families or any of that it's uh appealing to their narcissism is is much more effective which then um, makes me think of, you know, what what is the solution? I mean, people think that going to jail will cure them, save them, whatever, you know, and we know that's not going to happen. I mean, what do you do? You're not even safe when when they're in jail. I mean, and they get they seem to get better even or, or somehow, you know, because they're forced to not do anything while they're in jail, once they're released, they get worse. I mean, what what solutions are there, if any? We don't have solutions. People hate admitting that. Um, I do support jail for crimes, particularly violent crimes, because I think there is a point to keeping them, uh, to the public, simply keeping the public safe by removing them from the streets for whatever length of time the crime uh, permits. But I do not believe at this point that we have treatment programs that are effective for psychopaths and and there is are some data that suggests they actually get worse with treatment. There are at least two studies out there in which the psychopaths reoffended, the psychopaths who were treated reoffended more than the psychopaths who weren't treated. Now, as far as the sadists go, I don't know of any studies of of what will help sadists. And the reason is that when we catch them, we don't usually let them out. So if, if you have someone like Austin Zick, uh, recidivism is not an issue because people just don't let out the Austin Ziggs or the Ted Bundys or the Dahmers once they're actually caught. So we don't know Doc, if Doc, they could be Dr. Salter, or not. Are you familiar with the Fred and Rose case that happened in the UK, oh, what, 15, 20 years ago or something like that? No, I don't think so. What were the circumstances? Well, uh, Fred married Rose and they had children and I think he even had a child from a previous uh, relationship and they 
uh, were not only sexually molesting and torturing their own children, but they were kidnapping young women and bringing them to their house. They had a special torture chamber uh, in the basement, and they had pretty much a uh, standard technique for the whole torture process they went through. They murdered or she murdered one of their children, buried them under the patio in the backyard. Um, it, it was it was so horrific uh, that I actually, after reading one description of the events as they were reconstructed uh, during the trial, I couldn't read the rest of the reconstructions because I just had to skip to the end of the book to find out how it turned out. I couldn't go. I couldn't take any more. It was really that horrific. Yeah. So I was just wondering if you were familiar with this one and if you had uh, kind of had made an assessment. No, I'm not familiar with that particular one, but uh, you know, I'm familiar with that type of offender. If you just type in Fred and Rose in Google, you'll you'll get it. I mean, it'll just pop yeah. up. I mean, Fred and Rose West. Yeah, it was just it was probably the most awful thing I've ever read. This um, um this research. Go ahead. See why people who who work with uh, who interview people like Fred and Rose, you can easily see from your reaction why they often end up traumatized. Yeah, well, the funny thing is, is that Fred committed suicide before he could be brought to trial. I mean, there's an, there's some interesting twists in the way the case turned out, and I, you know, I just kind of, I couldn't get the fact that he committed suicide before he could be brought to trial. Not going to jail. I've seen that before, too, where uh, there was one case, and I don't remember the name of, I don't remember the name of the offender, but he was pulled over for a traffic stop. Uh, and he just assumed they were pulling him over for the torture chamber he had in his basement, and he had a suicide pill on, and he killed himself. And the truth was that it was just a routine, some kind of routine traffic stop. But when they went to his house, they discovered the high-speed incinerator, the torture chamber below. And I think a number of them make that decision that if they're ever caught, rather than live their lives in prison, they're just going to kill themselves. Oh boy, something that is um, heartbreaking in your book is that apparently this uh, kind of individual target, uh, above all, they target the most empathetic one, the most caring one. Uh, one of your interviewees says, the reason I can be so successful, an inmate tells me, is I find people who really care about other people. Oh, that's pretty common. Uh, I have had uh, offenders tell me that they love churches because people are more gullible in churches, that they look for the best in everyone. Uh, You know, the real, um, oh gosh, I don't know the word, but the truth is that offenders, predators, don't just prey on our weaknesses. They prey on our strengths as well. Uh, they prey on the fact that many people are trusting, that they do look for the best in people, that they don't consider the worst that it, uh, in people. And those are natural uh, victims for them. They're, most of them are not actually looking for a challenge. They're looking for the easiest victim. 
Are you familiar with the work of Sandra Brown, who wrote the book Women Who Love Psychopaths? Um, no. I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. Well, she did, uh, she did actually um, a study, I mean, more or less a, a pretty good one, uh, and determined that most of the women who get involved in, in uh, personal relationships with psychopaths were very empathetic. They were very, they were strong. They, they basically had a lot of juice, you know. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because uh, Reed Malloy has a book out on women who are involved with violent offenders and they found they were had a lot of personality disorders. Uh, so I haven't read Sandra Brown's book, but I highly I, recommend I have, it because oh, I will. And um, we've had her on the show before. She's she's a nice lady. That's great. Well, I'm not surprised that they have some disorders because, in a way, I mean, it's people who are strong or good or, you know, who have a lot of strength who get sort of crushed by the system or are sort of insecure because they don't want to hurt somebody else. They want, you know, I mean, there's all of... Well, that's not, I mean, what Sandra was dealing with were women who loved psychopaths who were not violent necessarily uh, because they were... They were kind yeah, of like the, the, the mind rapers. Um, are you talking about emotional abuse? Are you talking about people who traumatize people outside the family? Yeah, it's mostly emotional. It's like mind rape. You know, it's kind of like that, uh, like that movie Gaslight. Uh, you know, where they mm-hmm. they take this absolute delight in just screwing somebody's mind up completely and getting them to love them so much that they you know, fall on their knees and beg them to stay home, and then they, oh, no, I have a new girlfriend now. You just have to stay here and, and, and cook my meals and wash my clothes while I go and run around with other women because they enjoy this psychological suffering. Well, they will use anybody for sure, and they can be quite charismatic. That's part of the problem with them. There was a very interesting study by Gottman who sort of wired uh, abusive couples up to machines that measured their heart rate and their uh, and uh, skin conductance and so forth. Now, essentially, uh, things that would measure how physiologically aroused they got. And then he asked them to talk about something that, uh, some topic that was had caused violence in the past. And, and it, there were several really interesting things about it. One was that there was a small group of domestic violence batterers who were, in my opinion, from reading the results, psychopathic. And they got, as the other person got more upset in the argument, they got quiet, they got stiller in terms of their emotional response, like a predator, mm-hmm. you know, like a, they called them cobras, because they would, you know, the, a predator isn't dancing around before they strike. They get very still. And this group got very still, and their heart rates actually dropped in the middle of a argument, for example, where the other person got more and more and more aroused. They were more violent. The violence was more sudden and unpredictable, and the violence came when someone tried to control them and Asking them to take out the trash might be their definition of control. But the point I was making is, even though the other group, the pit bull batterers, were less violent and were not psychopathic, 
their wives left them far more often than the women left the cobras. And part of it had to do with the charisma of the cobra. Uh-huh. These guys can be very, very charismatic. I and think they that talk might, a good guy. Yeah, I think that might be the kind that she's dealing with. You might want to take a look at it, and, and you'll see that it's it's kind of a uh, a whole different uh, population, I think, of women. And uh, she was looking for very specific types of relationships. So it's a, it's a really interesting Look, and I think I've read the study you're talking about, about the heart rate going down. Uh, I'm yep. pretty sure that, I've, yeah, I've, I've got that one. And like I that said, one. I've spent I've been spent 10 years trying to wrap my head around this, reading everything I can get my hands on, you know, just to hammer it in that it's real. Um, Sandra Brown as well mentioned when describing this charisma, this almost supernatural skill, supernatural charisma and uh, hypnotic power upon the victim during your work um, did you experience during your interviews did you experience this uh, hypnotic uh, effects on you oh yeah unexplainable no, uh, impact effects on you i don't think i don't think of them as hypnotic at all uh, but i think of them it, one of the reasons uh, i suspect that sandra brown got the findings that she got is that uh Good people forgive other people. They look for the best in them, and they will minimize the bad. So women who are very kind would be very likely, when he sobbed afterwards and said he was sorry, to forgive them. In prison, uh, among the psychopaths that I have interviewed, what one of them said to me is, it's all a question of time, how much time you have to get to somebody. And my interviews, I come in, I go out, uh, I'm only interviewing them once typically, and that's just really not enough time for them to do what they do. So Uh I don't, uh, but I will say this, I have discovered how likable some of them are. And one of the most likable men I've ever met was a contract killer. I have no idea how many people he killed. I know he killed a woman in Madison, uh, came in her house and put five bullets in her chest, uh, and and uh, it afterwards said that he had been doing it for ten years. But, oh, my God, was this guy likable. And that's a, a problem that people have, our species have. We think that likability and trustworthiness go together, and they don't. So if you like someone, people are very quick to trust them. And if you think someone is a jerk, you'll sort of believe they're capable of anything. Uh, yeah, my kid. To work, yeah. I was to just going to say, my successfully, you have to separate out the two. You have to realize that you will genuinely like some people who do horrific things, and that it doesn't make them one bit more trustworthy. That's true. My kids have a kind of a saying that if mom really likes somebody, they're probably um, a wacko. <laughs> I get I get taken in so much. I swear. And um, there's a, you just mentioned a, a fundamental paradox um, here. Actually, in our world, individual who seems who seem the most like likable, the most charismatic, are in reality, the ones that are the most destructful. So there's a kind of a 
reversal of values or a, this clash between appearances and reality. Yes, I don't, I'm not saying, of course, that everybody who's charismatic is a psychopath, but I'm saying that many psychopaths no. are are very charismatic and that part of our job, I think, in growing up is to recognize that the two, charisma and trustworthiness, are totally separate. You can be charismatic and trustworthy, and you can be charismatic in a wolf in sheep's clothing, too. Mm-hmm. And you, you quote several times in the book Gavin de Becker, who says that niceness is a decision. I think that's Not really important. Exactly. Well, I, I joke that if I ever get a tattoo, that's going to be it. Uh, and <laughs> there are days, you know, when I think I'd put it on my forehead. <laughs> <laughs> we have a question here from a listener. <clears throat> Uh, Dr. Salter, have you had any experience of child psychopaths and or sadists? And if so, what do you think about their possible rehabilitation? Well, Austin Sieg, who I suspect your readers are familiar with, he abducted and uh, raped, murdered and dismembered a little 10-year-old girl who was just walking to school. He was an adolescent at the time. It was pretty clear he was sadistic. He talked about getting watching films of dismemberment in a sexual fashion and what i said at the sentencing is that those two concepts just don't go to re- together for the rest of us there's no form of dismemberment the rest of us would find uh, in any way sexual but he was an adolescent at the time and there was an adolescent uh statist in wisconsin i didn't interview him but he actually kidnapped a a uh, younger adolescent and broke his legs and then uh, all night he would alternately be very nice to him and then he would jump on the broken legs and he survived <laughs> because he crawled with the, the uh, sadist fell asleep and he crawled something like five miles to get help and while he'd been in captivity the sadist had told him that he had done this to another kid who died and told him the kid's name and that kid had indeed drowned but they, no one had checked his bones. They exhumed the body, and he had broken, his legs were broken. So why he drowned was because his legs were broken. So very, very rare, but there are adolescents who are sadistic. Uh, psychopathy, if you have it, it tends to start generally before adolescence and continue into adolescence. Nobody wakes up at 22 and suddenly they don't have a conscience. Uh, so it, it is much more common to find kids who score high in psychopathy during adolescence than it is, of course, to find uh, sadists. They are very rare. Wow. So, <clears throat> wow. Did you uh, ever come across a fellow who kind of dominates the topic of narcissism since you mentioned it? on the internet, a Sam Vaknin. No. Who is this? Uh, well, he claims to be a psychologist, and it turns out that he, he got his d- degree from a diploma mill, that he had made, he, like I said, he was dominating the internet on the subject of narcissism, or what he would call, uh, it was not toxic narcissism, it was malignant narcissism. And he claimed that he himself was a narcissist, which was why he was qualified 
to be the best mm-hmm. uh, advisor of people who were suffering from uh, narcissistic partners or family members or recovering from narcissistic abuse and so forth. And some uh, there was a, a film crew that just down in Australia, I believe it was, uh, who got him to go and get tested and uh, they filmed the whole thing. And it was it's really kind of interesting because they made a film called I uh, Psychopath out of it because after he got tested at some famous uh, university in I think it was Germany, uh, they determined that he wasn't a narcissist at all. He was an, a full-blown psychopath, which was, I mean, an absolutely fascinating film. I can't comment too much on it. I can't comment at all because I don't, I really don't know who this person is, but I would advise anyone who is suffering the aftermath of psychopathy to uh, go to Robert Hare's website. There's a legitimate organization uh, that uh, tries, that is oriented around helping survivors of psychopathy. And it certainly wouldn't surprise me if us a psychopath was narcissistic enough to kind of set up a phony business on the internet. Uh, psychopathy has been called malignant narcissism before. Well, it, it, it's absolutely hilarious because yeah, everywhere you go when you study or, or try to research on the internet narcissism, that's who you find. Sam Backman and his articles, they post them literally everywhere uh, as wow. though he were the world's living expert on narcissism. And we, we spent a, a period of time exposing him, and we still get hate mail for it because every time we expose one of these con artists, we uh, we get subjected to a whole lot of hate mail, and that's one of them. But it was, it was kind of like... Uh, I, w- I would recommend watching the film because it's, it's highly entertaining. What's the name of the film? I, comma, Psychopath. Okay, I would certainly do that. But and I think there you are might, lots. You might... Just going to say there are lots of people who uh, are looking for somebody to help them understand what happened to them. I I certainly get a lot of mail from people who say you're describing my ex-husband or my ex-wife or whatever. And there is a legitimate organization. It's called it's a nonprofit called Aftermath Surviving Psychopathy. And I think that, uh, you know, that's a a good place for people to go. You know, you can't underestimate the charisma of these guys. Uh, I was once talking with a colleague uh, in corrections, and she was telling me that as a child, her best friend's father was a psychopath. He was, and his shirt salesman, he wasn't sending the policies in. He was pocketing all the money. And when it came out, uh, he just left town, and he had mortgaged the house to the point that the family uh, lo- completely lost the house. The mother went into a profound depression, and the, they were evicted. And the neighbors got enough money together to put them on a bus to some other relatives. The mother was completely out of it at this point. And, but she said to me, you know, if he walks through the door tomorrow, I'd be glad to see him. And I found that... Just an incredibly powerful statement. She knew exactly what he'd done to her friend and her friend's mother. And then she started talking about funny things he would say. You know, she spent the night at the house, and they'd come down in the morning, and he would say, what house have you two been uh, haunting? 
you know, uh, even after all these years, after knowing what she knew, she'd still be glad to see him. That's jaw-dropping. And that gives a totally different perspective to the Stockholm Syndrome, actually. Yeah. Another point, um, another feature of psychopathy we didn't address yet is the this amazing chameleon-like uh, abilities that you describe in your book, using the example of uh, Asibiades. I don't know if you yes, pronounce it correctly. Could you tell us a, a bit more about this um, chameleon uh, ability, chameleon skills? When I interview offenders in prison, uh, particularly child molesters, I often ask them about the double life. And they all know what I'm talking about. They pretended to be one thing while they were another. But the psychopaths are the most interesting answers because they always say, well, I was more like a chameleon. I was a churchgoer among churchgoers. I was a hellraiser among hellraisers. And I think that chameleon-like ability to be whatever you want me to be, it, it really is characteristic of many psychopaths. If you look back in history, you you it's everybody's favorite game, sort of name the the psychopath in history, and I honestly think most of the rec- uh, recommendations or most of the uh, names that people give are ridiculous. Uh, people who claim that Shirley Temple was a psychopath and Winston Churchill was a psychopath and all, oh, all of those things are just, just totally ridiculous. But look at Alcibiades, and, uh, because he certainly shows the characteristics of psychopathy. He was a uh, lived at the time of Socrates, and in fact was a uh, a pupil uh, of Socrates. He was extremely wealthy. He was born into an incredibly wealthy family. And when his father died, Pericles himself became his guardian. So he lived a charmed life. He was extremely violent. He killed a servant at one point. His wife tried to leave him because he was so violent towards her, but he was beloved by the people. They uh, Plutarch, writing uh, much later, said that even his enemies would be charmed by him, uh, that he could talk them into anything. Well, at one point he got in a lot of trouble because in one of his drunken episodes, he and his friends defaced uh, the, the statues of one of the gods in the city, and that was just too much for the for the Athenians to bear because they were more scared of the gods than they were uh, enamored of Socrates, of uh, Alcibiades. So uh, he was so popular they couldn't arrest him. They sent him off on a mission to attack Syracuse. I don't think there was any good reason for doing that, but they did, and tried to recall him, and so he just disappeared. So he showed up in Sparta, and here was this guy who used to, Travel, have, you know, eat out of gold plates and uh, have a perfumer uh, and drag velvet on the ground. I mean, this was a guy who was used to the high lifestyle, and somewhere on the way to Sparta, he cuts his hair close and he gives all that up and he starts dining on black broths. So he shows up at Sparta, the perfect Spartan, and the, everybody became enamored of him there. So then he gets the queen's wife pregnant, which was actually, the king was away a little too long for it to be his child, and uh, Alcibiades 
bragged that he had impregnated the wife, not because he cared about her, but because he wanted his genes to rule Sparta. Well, that did put him on the king's to-be-assassinated list. So <laughs> he had, you know, he heads over to Persia, where before long the Persian satrap is getting up early in the morning uh, to have more hours in the day to talk with with Alcibiades. So eventually he comes back to Athens, and uh, they are delighted to see him. Now, he betrayed every country that he'd ever been involved with. Uh, well, not only they that. Were, yeah, he gave Sparta information about Athens. Uh, and they still, when he comes back, they greet him with open arms and make him a general again. And the irony of the, of this story is that when Socrates was accused of corrupting the youth of the city, Alcibiades was one of the examples. So for myself, I find myself thinking, good Lord, uh, even Socrates couldn't change the psychopath? I mean, <laughs> it's far from Socrates having misled Alcibiades, Alcibiades proved pretty much immune to Socrates' teachings. And that is more the characteristic of a psychopath, not for Pete's sake, Shirley Temple or Winston Churchill, but someone who will betray everybody and turn into whatever you want them to be. That's and one suspects he was. He, one suspects he was doing the same thing with Socrates. Possibly, but there's an interesting story of a retreat. Socrates was a fierce warrior which most people don't realize and he would uh, he could bear hardship he could he would you know march in in the cold on bare feet and there was a retreat at one point where the army w- was losing and they had to retreat and Socrates wouldn't run that's like Socrates he would he just stomped back to the lines and Alcibiades protected him he was on horseback and he protected him and i have struggled with that why did Alcibiades protect Socrates but I think I think he knew who he was. I think he protected him like you would protect, like he would have protected a golden urn or something. I think he recognized what Socrates was. Uh, so that's the that's the story of Alcibiades. Yeah, I think uh, Cleckley includes that one in uh, Mask of Sanity as as an example of of the psychopath in history. And, uh, you know, to me it's kind of entertaining because most of my work is history. And I, I'm always reading about these people and determining, you know, who are the, you know, who, who are the psychopaths? What can you really find out? You know, who are the crazy people and who are the, who are not? So it's, it's entertaining. It's just self, you know, and, and my, my favorite person to hate is Cicero. Oh, really? And why Cicero over others? There are many, there are many possibilities. <laughs> oh, oh, let me tell you, if Jerome Carcopino, well, I mean, I read all of Cicero's letters, his orations, et cetera, et cetera, and the whole thing about how, you know, he was behind the assassination of Julius Caesar and how Julius Caesar was presented as such an evil guy, and it turns out that none of that is even true. And when you compare Cicero's public orations with his private letters, of which over 950 have been published or were published after his death. And he certainly never intended for them to be published. You see that Cicero was 
Cicero was as close to a psychopath as anybody I have ever seen based on the difference between what he said in public and what he said in private. And the fact was, was that it was a gang of wealthy elitists who assassinated Julius Caesar because he wanted to give land to the poor. And that was right. basically what it was all about, you know. So, and, and Cicero was uh, kind of the uh, ideological uh, mover and shaker of that assassination plot. That's fascinating. Cicero has not been on my list, um, but he he is now. I will go back and read Cicero because I am interested in how this phenomenon plays out in other centuries. I think we have always had them with us. There's a great book. It's in two volumes by uh, historian Jerome Carcopino, and that's C-A-R-C-O-P-I-N-O, Carcopino, and it's translated into English from French. It's a it's an is an amazing book because he shows exactly who and what Cicero is. But I had already figured it out before I read the book. I was just so glad I wasn't alone. Uh-huh. Well, I will definitely get it. Well, you raise um, something interesting here, the, the history of this. I mean, how far back does this go? We don't know. It's It's kind of like... Some people have always been aware of it. I mean, for us, we've been aware of it for a few years. But most people still have no awareness of the extent of the problem that's out there. I mean, that's what it comes down to, isn't it? You said in the book, you phrase it, that people have got to acknowledge that malevolence is part of our reality. Or a simpler way of saying it, that evil is real. Well, it's true. We have those among us who intend to harm. Uh, we have those among us who don't care who they harm. We have those among us who absolutely enjoy harming others, which is really my personal definition of evil. Uh, when I wrote the book, I had the chapter on sadist, and uh, I say right up front, so you don't have to read this. You might want to skip it because it's not going to make you any happier. And then I had the chapter on positive illusions, things that people say to themselves to get through the day, everything happens for the best, that kind of thing. And I expected to get a lot of angry mail about the book, The Chapter on Sadism. I never had any response, the negative response to The Chapter on Sadism. But the chapter on positive illusions, I I had Harry Potter howlers coming through my house, screaming at me. People got so upset at the idea of, that some of what people believe has to do with denial. Uh, and I got emails saying, you just want to make everybody sad and gloomy. I had one professional refuse to endorse the book, saying I wouldn't endorse this book to anybody. Uh, she, for anybody, she said, uh, my neighbor leaves her door unlocked because she says, if I leave my door unlocked, they may rob me one day. But if I lock my door, they rob me every day. And I, I'm pretty calm in responding to the pros and cons of feedback that come in, but that really annoyed the heck out of me. And I wrote back and said, if, if all we were talking about was a lost television set, I'd agree with your friend, but what we are talking about is the safety of our children, and they can't afford your kind of denial. And I, I do believe that. People who want to think there's good in everybody and 
any kind of aberrant behavior can be explained away and they didn't really mean to do it. I think those people, uh, that form of denial makes them feel safe, but I don't think it makes either them or their children actually safe. Hmm. So I think that uh, what what it really kind of comes down to, what you're saying is, is that we need to know these things because then we can make choices to live in a safe reality. It's not the illusion that makes your reality safe because the danger is always there. It's when you are aware of the danger that you make choices, proactive choices, to protect yourself, to protect your children, to protect uh, you know, your society, that then you can begin to live in a society where uh, those things don't happen anymore because you're aware of them, you're alert to them, you are proactively heading them off at the past, so to say. So that that's the only way to live in a safe reality where people don't rob you is to know that there are robbers and to lock the damn lock door. door. Yeah, lock your damn door. Yeah, say some uh, dating on the Internet. Uh, yes, I know someone who, who is happily married because of someone they met on the Internet. Yes, I know it works out a lot of times. However, when you go for the first date, Make sure someone knows where you're going. Make sure the person knows that someone else knows and meet them in a public place. In other words, yes, there are good possibilities out there, but at the same time we always have to be aware that there are, in a minority of cases, there are some really bad possibilities out there and we need to uh, hope for the best and plan for the worst. Yeah, that's absolutely the truth. I mean, it's just... It's just, uh, it's a jungle out there. We have another question here from uh, a listener concerning female offenders. What about female sadists and or sexual offenders? Are there any significant differences between men and women sadists or predators? There, well, there are female sadists, and they are rare. There are also female um, uh, psychopaths and they are more rare than male psychopaths but when they but they are just as dangerous as male psychopaths are uh, look at the case of Carla Homanka in Canada in which she gave her sister to her rapist boyfriend 15 year old sister uh, as a birthday present and they drugged the kid and then she put chloroform on the kid's face and the kid actually and they both sexually assaulted the kid while she was passed out and she actually died from the chloroform and then they went on to kidnap a couple of other women young women teenagers and uh, and also uh, rape and murder them so yes there are female sayers out there there are in terms of pedophiles, which is a whole different thing, those are people who are sexually attracted to kids, I don't think the same type, they, they have the same typology as male uh, sex offenders. It is far more rare to find a female sex offender who is an actual pedophile. There are different groups of female sex offenders. There, are, there is a group that molests kids, generally theirs, starting in the preschool years, and with that group, there's a high incidence of physical abuse and and sometimes sadism as part of that. And then there's a group that molests children to please a male. And then there's a, 
a third group, uh, and that's what we call the teacher-lover group, and that's the only one you ever hear much about, and that's the group where a woman is typically on average in her mid-30s and has sex with a uh, kid who's half her age, who's 15. Uh, and some of those are quite, it's not that they go from kid to kid to kid. They're like, some of them, it's like Mary Kayla Turner. They become obsessed with one kid. And in Mary Kayla Turner's case, I believe he was 12 when she began uh, having sex with him. And after serving time in prison, she eventually married him when he turned uh, 21. How did that turn so out? there are males in all those categories. How did How did that turn out? Do you know? The last I I check on the internet uh, regularly, uh, and the last I read is it's a completely non-functional situation. Neither of them work, uh, are able to hold a job, and they have it lived for a long time at least lived off selling pictures of their children, uh, pictures of their wedding, things things like that. They sort of were surviving on their notoriety. Yuck. You, you mentioned pedophiles as a distinct group, so, um, and you've described them as saying, well, they're people who are actually attracted to children. So there's going to be some overlap, of course. I mean, th- this thing is not understandable to ordinary people. So are we talking about a kind of another group of psychopaths here, or is this less than? At least according to a study by Porter, less than 10% of pedophiles are psychopaths. There are more often people who are responsible in every other area of their lives, and psychopathy cuts across areas, but they are sexually attracted to kids. It's no respecter of social economic status. We have pedophiles who are homeless, and we have pedophiles who have won Nobel Prizes. So this is... It's not a general antisociality, although you can have pedophiles who are antisocial. But what the term means is that they're sexually attracted to children. And we don't know where that comes from any more than, uh, than they do. They, or what they will tell you is when they were 13 or 14 and everybody else is getting excited about girls or maybe uh, a same-sex attraction, they were attracted to little kids. But ten percent is actually. Pardon. Ten percent is still higher than uh, the number of psychopaths in the uh, population. I think, isn't it? Certainly, certainly, because uh, you know, if you're psychopathic, you'll act on things that other people won't. I suspect. I think we can say for sure that there are pedophiles out there in the sense of men who are sexually attracted to children who don't act on it. Nobody acts on all their sexual impulses. You may be attracted to your best friend's uh, husband, or you may be attracted to your sister's boyfriend, or you may be attracted, you know, you may be attracted, a man may be attracted to the 16-year-old babysitter. It doesn't mean he's going to rape her on the way home, uh, taking her home at night. People have all kinds of sexual attractions. We just don't act on. So they're very likely uh, men out there who are sexually attracted to kids and who just go, I don't think so. That's horrible. But the ones we're concerned about are the ones who act on it. And, yes, I, you, I think you would expect the incidence of psychopaths to be elevated over the general population because it certainly takes a uh, – because psychopaths really don't care who they hurt and if they were – happen to be sexually attracted to kids, they would be 
likely to act on it. So are you saying that there's a possibility for, quote, recovery for those who are attracted to children but, you know, feel guilty about it even after they've acted on it in some cases? Yes. I don't think the, the data on pedophiles and child molesters in treatment is not as grim as the data on psychopaths. Uh, and there are a series, there's a whole meta-analysis of studies that suggest that treatment can reduce uh, child molestation by 40%. Now, the problem with that figure is that these are short-term studies. They go typically on an average of four years, and there is at least one 12-year study which showed that the results wiped out after time. It may be that treatment doesn't work like an inoculation for measles. It works like uh, something that helps, but you have to sustain it afterwards. You have to go to groups or you have to have some kind of aftercare. I don't think we have the answers to this. But whether or not treatment works long term is an open question. I do think there's some data that suggests it can reduce the incidence of child molestation, at least short term. What do you think about... Uh castration as a uh, treatment for uh, predatory sexual behavior? I think it's a non-issue because the U.S. Supreme Court has found that it's cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, so I don't think it's it's an issue. Not even if the person wanted it? The big arguments about that, whether anybody can volunteer for it, it if you're a prisoner, is that a free choice to volunteer for castration? And some people have volunteered for it, and I believe they have carried through. But that's not going to reduce the incidence of child molestation overall because very few people are going to volunteer for it, even if the state permits them to have it. And uh, here I might be wrong, but from uh, what I understood... Apparently, for some of those individuals you describe in your book, the whole process is beyond sex as we experience it. You describe the case of this individual who who was getting really high, but beyond sexual arousal, just by thinking about of cutting the head of one of the, his victims. So there's no no sexual interaction per se. Non, Nothing like that involved. It seemed to be a super high hormonal reaction to something that that has n from, no sexual connotation. From cutting causing a head. pain, not from the sex that's, life that's itself. True. There, is, there, there is a variety of sadists, and there are some sadists who are sexually aroused by beating someone up. Uh, or by hurting them in, in some way, and it doesn't have to be an attack on the genitalia. They, one of the films I made, he put uh, he would put a bag over his son's head, and then as the child turned blue and passed out, that's what sexually aroused him. He wasn't attacking the kid's genitals. Uh, I mean, at that point, he did at other points, and then he would rip the bag off the head and then force the oral sex on the child as he was coming to. And that's an example of someone who was aroused by by something that wasn't sexual at all. Most of us don't think dismemberment has anything to do with sex. And yet uh, Austin Zig was 
masturbating to dismemberment films, and that's exactly what he did, is dismember a child. So yes, there Jesus. is a variety. And uh, here you're mentioning masturbation, but in some cases there's not even masturbation. There is some kind of hormonal reaction, and the person describe it like uh, taking cocaine or getting super high because of violence with uh, no masturbation, no sexual stimulation at all. That's true. I have talked to, uh, and some cannot uh, get erect in a, a rape situation or, or something. And it, they tell me that they get a high that is better than crack, better than cocaine, and it's just a full body high. Obviously, I, it seems obvious that they are triggering some kind of chemical in their brains, and that for whatever reasons, they have. Uh, developed the ability to release these chemicals by being violent. And violence releases the chemicals and gives them a high. But it's true. Some of the super violent offenders don't talk about orgasm at all. They talk about a full body rush. Yeah. I'm having a hard time <laughs> coping with this. <laughs> well, we're having a hard time. And it's understandable that most people going about their lives have a hard time. What I don't understand, though, you touched on this in your book, is other researchers who are in a position like you, who have access to the same data as you do, who come up with, they just do, seem to do mental gymnastics in their own brains to explain this away, invariably blaming the victims and or the parents. Yeah, I really worry. I worry where the field of child sexual abuse is heading because there is a gigantic swing in my field towards the notion that these guys are like everybody else and they just want a good life and they don't know how to go about getting it. So if you help them develop a good life, then they won't do this kind of behavior. Now, that is actually true of some offenders. Uh, that's true of uh, many child molesters, that's true of many rapists, but when you start applying that philosophy to people like who have a deviant arousal pattern, for example, Jerry Sandusky had a good life. There was nothing wrong. He was very successful in his field. He was successful financially. He had friends. He had meaningful work. He was adored. All of that stuff. It didn't change the fact that he had an erotic attraction to children. So I... In the uh, the contingent of experts who are now saying that all these guys need is a good life, it bothers me tremendously that they don't realize that that may apply to some offenders, but it cannot explain the behavior of others, and it doesn't explain the the kind of deviance that would cause you to dismember a child. I, I am sorry, but it is not. They are not trying to get the same things that the rest of us are getting. Pedophiles, for example, could be. Some of them are attracted to adults, too, and some aren't. But let's take uh, someone who isn't attracted to adults. It's, you can offer him any adult you want. If he's not attracted to them, his problem is that he is attracted to kids. That has to be dealt with. Now, Jerry Sandusky was apparently attracted to adults, and he had a great life. It didn't change the fact that he was sexually attracted to kids. I think there's a lot of minimizing going on in my field, a lot of blaming the victim, a lot of excusing behavior, uh, a lot of people just not recognizing the seriousness of the problem. And you're right. It's among the experts in the field. 
I mean, that contention is ridiculous. There's a lot of people who have a hard life, and they don't even turn into, you know, petty thieves. I mean, they have, they become decent human beings. Why should that, that be part of the, the equation? Uh, I think what has happened is a lot of these people who advocate this work only with offenders, and they don't work with victims at all. I think they are often humane and caring individuals, and they start caring for the people that they work with. Well, that's fine, but it's not balanced unless you also see the victim side of it, or you will end up making excuses for these guys. Yeah. When you see how prevalent this tendency to blame the victim is, you start to wonder to what extent our society has been psychopathized by psychopaths. And somehow they gave us their mind and we start to see the world through their own distorted psyche. Oh, I, you could uh, say a lot about the culture. For example, in the DSM series, it is a mental disorder uh, if you are hoarding. So if you're collecting old newspapers and junking up the house with them, that's a mental disorder. But if you're uh, if you're so greedy that you're collecting companies or, or you're relying on child slave labor in China uh, to build your company, that's, that's not a mental disorder. Right? We've accepted that as appropriate behavior. In fact, greed is likely to kill us all, the greed of certain individuals. Uh, but we accept that on a cultural level. We accept amassing fortunes. We accept ruining other people's lives. Uh, we accept all of that. There's nothing wrong with that. But uh, greed on a grand scale is applauded. Uh, hoarding is a mental illness. Well, look at what they're doing. Uh, I think it started kind of in the Netherlands, uh, maybe in other places, where they're trying to normalize uh, pedophilia uh, to to say that children... And I think this even started with Kinsey, that children have sexual urges and they should be entitled to uh, fulfill those sexual urges. And, and adults, uh, it's normal for them to uh, feel sexually attracted to children and it's good for the children and it's good for the adults. So it's, if it's good for everybody, let's just all get out there and do it and have a party and have fun. And, you know, let's do away with any of these nasty laws about how wicked pedophilia is. It's just a... It's just a natural, normal part of human life. Freud, including Freud. Freud? Who say the same, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's certainly true that there are people who take that stance, the Man-Boy Love Association. There is, is a political party uh, in, in Holland that supports pedophilia. That has not really made its way in the mainstream. <laughs> so... Uh, I don't, but I don't think that has made a lot of gains. But there are individuals out who are, who who do argue that. Uh, but I think what's more common is that we've normalized uh, rape. That's where we're most likely to blame the victims, uh, and especially if you're uh, famous enough or wealthy enough, you can sort of get away with it. Doctor Felder, we have. Um a chat room going here and some people have been posting their comments and questions. I've got one here. Do you think that the horrific abuse these people commit 
can be the result of some kind of abuse they themselves experience, or were they born with those tendencies? That's kind of the, the, the uh, question, nurture or nature. In the field, it has been accepted for a long time that many, most of the people who sexually abused were sexually abused themselves. But those claims were always based on what? It was based on self-report by the child molesters. Uh, uh, Heinemann, J- uh, Jan Heinemann, did a study where she had one group of sex offenders, and she said, uh, basically, were you molested as a child? And with another group, she said, were you molested as a child? And they were told they had to take a polygraph on the results of the interview. She did this three times, five years apart, she and Jim Peters. And what they discovered was that about two-thirds of the sex offenders said they were molested as children when they weren't threatened with a polygraph. And about 29 to 30% said they were when they were threatened with a polygraph. Now, this isn't about how good the polygraph is because they hadn't even taken it yet. This was just how good they thought it was. So I don't think we have evidence that most child molesters were sexually abused as children. Now, is it uh, genetic? Is it an aberration in the brain? Uh, it may it may well be. We we don't know that. I don't. I think when we don't know something, we should just say we don't know it. And it bothers me how often uh, people make up things when they don't know. We we really don't know. What we know about psychopaths is there's definitely a genetic connection in psychopathy, but we don't, and that their brains do function differently from other people. But I don't think we have enough data on pedophiles to say much about where it comes from. Indeed. Um, interesting question to me is what is society going to do about it? Let's say you discover that sadism is because of a lesion in some part of the brain. That's possible. Okay. What is society going to do with that? Are you going to say, well, okay, it's not really his fault, so we'll let him out on the street? The thing to me is whether he acquired it during childhood, whether he was born with it, he is just as dangerous. So yeah. it gets back to what, what are prisons for? Are they to punish people or are they to keep society safe? Because if if you're going to argue that it's not his fault, and many people do, that it was either a bad upbringing or perhaps some faulty wiring, frankly, everything has a component of either you were born with it or you got it somewhere along the way. Otherwise, where does it come from? What is this, How is society going to use that information when we can be more specific about where it came from? Because the problem is, if you let him out because it's genetic, he's, he's still going to go out and hurt someone. Yeah, what's what's the point of this argument? If If it is what it is, you still have to deal with it. It doesn't change what they did or what they will keep doing if you don't contain them. Well, that's what I think. I think it doesn't change that that part of it, wherever it came from. But people are, there are people who would passionately disagree that if someone is born with a genetic uh, predilection for violence, that that should be count as a mitigating factor. In fact, there is quite a lot of uh, research that suggests that that some people do have a genetic predilection for violence. 
and I have read that when it's used in court cases, it typically does result in lower sentences. But you know what? If it's a genetic uh, predilection for violence, that you could argue that's an aggravating factor, not a mitigating factor, because it means you are very unlikely to talk him out of it. And it any means kind you of prob- talk. Yeah. Pro- probably lock him up and throw away the key. You could argue that, and I'm talking now not not about your general child molestation, which which definitely should be punished. But I'm talking, but I'm talking about the people who are abducting kids cutting off their arms and legs like like Austin Diggs said, the, the extremely dangerous predators. If it's in his brain or if it came afterwards, he's still got it. Yeah, yeah. And you, you emphasize this in your book that, you know, whatever about early warning signs that were missed, as soon as they've crossed a line, it's only going to get worse and worse. And even when they are incarcerated, they spend enormous amounts of time fantasizing about what they would do. You know, it's like they've already turned that way and it's just going to get worse, even if they're not actually in direct contact with the potential victims. Well, for some of them, I'm I'm not saying that every offender reoffends at all. I, I'm talking because the, the data suggests that most offenders are low-risk offenders who uh, who have a very low risk for reoffending, but obviously. But I am talking about the the small percentage of really really predatory offenders who commit extreme acts. And there, I think, uh, once you have that. Uh, you know, sexual arousal to uh, killing someone, for example, uh, or torturing them, then, uh, yeah, that is likely to get worse. I think it's, um, well, I don't know what you think, but um, while you were talking about uh, what society will do, you know, it's like, it seems to me that there's going to have to be a big, big change in what people think and feel about these matters and, and, uh, about it's about learning to look at the bigger picture. I mean, one single individual who can commit these crimes and keep committing committing them. How many people is he going to hurt? You know, and these specialists or professionals are, you know, are arguing with paramoralistic arguments. You know, poor guy. You know, he could have changed, or it's genetic, or you know, he he will get better or whatever. I mean, it's we're talking about one person with data saying he is dangerous. And against a hundred, two hundred, a thousand people that he just one individual can damage, you know, forever. It's true that the very high risk pedophiles, uh, very high risk uh, psychopaths, and and the very few uh, sadists out there, it, it it is really true that they can damage a lot of lives. And it, I think what people often forget is. Uh, it, they don't just damage one person's life. I mean, look at the the Zig case. Uh, just going into that community to testify and uh, meeting that mom and training police officers the day afterwards, it made me so aware of how this will traumatize, this, this kind of behavior can traumatize an entire community. Uh, mm-hmm. Officers who had to listen to the confession a prosecutor said to me that he had to he was watching through one-way glass and at one point he had to leave the room 
when uh, when Zeke was calmly talking about uh, eating a sandwich while talking about dismembering this child. Uh, it it the damage is not only to the person, not only to that person's family. These these very very rare but very predatory offenders can really damage an entire community. Have you, have you heard of a book by Kevin Dutton, The Wisdom of Psychopaths? No, but that sounds like another one that's worth reading. <laughs> what is his claim? His, his, his claim is basically that it's the idea being promoted that we, ordinary people, have something to learn from psychopaths, that they have certain characteristics that we aspire to, you know, embrace the inner Such psychopath. As? Such as... Um, lack of conscience. Well, <laughs> the lack of, from the lack of conscience, you have decisiveness and good leadership and... Confidence. Uh, charisma. Charisma, confidence. And he, he, in his book, he goes through a whole... Um, a number of professions that, you know, where being a psychopath supposedly is useful, like, well, being in the military is pretty obvious, but then you, maybe if you're in the police or um, in other work that requires, you know, split-second decisions that there's no time for thinking and dwelling on it, that, that's kind of the message that's coming through, that their decisiveness. You know, Mar- the, Martha Stout took him apart. Oh, good. Well, so well to say, I, I, I'm not sure after hearing that I'm going to read the book because I find that argument <laughs> really Really, you look at Babiak's research on psychopaths in organizations, they caused enormous harm to the other employees and the morale of the organization, and they never actually got anything done. Uh, so that they, uh, they would rise through the ranks by stabbing other people in the back and, and lying about them, but they were not productive because they were more focused on their getting ahead than the goals of the organization. Uh, psychopaths well, in any, I don't think they do very well in the military either because in the military you are supposed to be uh, disciplined and the, the, you actually are supposed to sacrifice yourself if need be uh, for a certain cause. That's not the kind of thing a psychopath is going to do. A psychopath is going to discover that he can kill people and it doesn't bother him, so he may go off and kill a few villagers and rob them or, or something like that. The essence of psychopathy is... In, inability to attach to other human beings or feel loyalty. I do not believe that's helpful in any legitimate endeavor. I I have to agree, and I I just want to give you just a little bit of background here. Back in 2002, uh, we started publishing about psychopathy, and uh, over the years, um, we've, you know, we've really kind of... uh, almost single-handedly popularized the concept of psychopathy and power. Uh, we published a book called Political Ponerology by a, a Polish uh, clinical psychologist. And the funny thing is, is that as we have been um, putting out these articles, putting out these studies, you know, uh, correlating this material, making it available to the reading public, rather, you know, kind of like, getting it out of academia and getting it out to the masses so that they can understand what's being done in the research, uh, there's been this pushback of this popularizing 
of psychopathy as being an alternative way of being. And this is something that's kind of astounded us as as we've been observing this phenomenon because we can't we kind of being a news website where we kind of try to stay on top of all the news and all these different fields all the time every day. You know, we're like really news junkies, and um, this is a this is a really interesting phenomenon. This pushback, this normalization, this uh, popularizing, and the twisting of the concepts. You know, the uh, psychopaths are just poor, abused people. You know, that being promoted and. Uh, I was a teenage psychopath, but I grew up to be a world leader, so, you know, see how good it is. Yeah. Try it yourself. Uh, it's crazy. This is why I mentioned Kevin Dutton's book in particular, because this guy comes out of nowhere. He's a researcher in Cambridge in England, I think, and his book is suddenly a New York Times bestseller. A New York Times bestseller. Can you believe that? I mean, this is what the re- you know the masses of the reading public are are taking in, and, you know, we're fighting like crazy to point out that, you know, basically, what you, that's why I say before, I've, I've quoted you quite often in various articles and publications uh, saying that this is what Anna Salter says, and this is what Martha Stout says, and this is what uh, Paul Babiak says, and this is what Robert Hare says, and what Cleckley had said, and, and Adrian Raines, and so on and so forth, you know, trying to, you know, because these are the people that I, I considered, and there's another guy, too, there's a British, what's his name, Melton? Uh, there's quite a few. And, you know, all of these people are talking about what a dangerous thing this is and how bad it is for society. And then this Kevin Dutton comes along and gets a New York Times bestseller. You get, you see, you see what's frustrating me here? Oh, God, I do see what's frustrating you. And thank you for all the work you do. It really upsets, uh, survivors of psychopaths, too. And I get a lot of letters, uh, that, and that's, that say how much people get taken in by these guys, and uh, you don't realize the suffering. The most people don't realize the suffering that they cause other human beings. There's nothing laudable about it. And part of the problem, of course, is that in the media, on television, on movies, and so forth, they're always portrayed as these sort of mastermind, brilliant mastermind. Uh, kind of people. Well, actually, psychopathy cuts across all intelligence levels, so the sort of attractive, uh, brilliant psychopath plotting the whatever he's plotting uh, on that particular program is is pretty mythical. The reality is, you know, people who steal from their grandmothers, <laughs> seriously, yeah. uh, people who kill someone else because they looked at them wrong, uh, people who destroy companies because all they want is their own personal gain and they don't really give a damn about the goals of the of the company whatsoever people who would kill a villager uh, or you know rather than follow the rules in the military the reality is that these are very harmful people you and the people who make excuses for them are doing all of us a disservice yeah and it's it's and I, I can tell you almost the day, it was in October of 2002 that I published my first article on the topic, and within three days, I had already received a death threat in the mail. I'm not kidding. This is this is how, and then, you know, uh, the more I published, the more I tried to popularize the information, uh, the more the, I mean, I have been called a psychopath myself. I mean, defamed, 
uh, what would you guys call it? It's, it's just like a campaign of destruction because, you know, you can't possibly listen to this woman warning you about psychopathy and predators and that sort of thing because she herself is a psychopath. I mean, it's crazy. It is crazy. Um, I get called all kinds of names. I was interviewing a fender recently, and he said, do you know what they call you? This was in a civil commitment case, and I said, no. And he said, you really don't know? And I said, no. And he said, the princess of dark. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> really? Uh, one question. I get pushed back in my field. I, I, I was at a program uh, in England where we were trying to develop a program for psychopaths and a very famous author and researcher said to Vianna, when I sit down and talk to these guys, they're just doing the best they can and somehow when I read your work, I don't get a sense of that. And I said, they're doing the best they can and why are we here? Why are we here? If you don't, I said, I'm more optimistic about them than you are. Because you think they're just doing the best they can, and I'm thinking they can do better. <laughs> no. But yes, I get oh tremendous push feel because they say, "Well, you make people think that these guys are dangerous." I'm like, "Yes, there's a percentage of them that actually are dangerous." <laughs> oh my God! I know it's crazy. Talking. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you interview psychopaths? Have you tried to question them about? Um, the fact um, are they aware that they are psychopaths? Do they self-label themselves as psychopaths? Do they recognize well, instantly or other psychopaths? I go to a prison uh, almost every week, a maximum security. It, to be honest with you, it's actually a supermax, but there was a lawsuit in which they said that corrections couldn't use the name supermax anymore. So now. Nothing changed with the name, so now I call it the institution formerly referred to as Supermax. But they have some of the most violent offenders you can ever imagine, and I've had several who've asked for me to interview them because they think they might be a psychopath. I've had others that were infuriated uh, at the the term and disagreed. So it just depends on whether... They think it's uh, it sort of adds to their narcissistic image or not. I had one guy take out an ethics complaint because I called him callous. Well, I had scored him as callous on the psychopathy checklist, partly on the basis that he had decided to rob, he and his brother decided to rob an old man, and they planned in advance on beating him to death with a pipe. Then they went to a movie, and then they went and did it. And I considered that evidence of callous behavior. And he... Uh, he actually took out an ethics complaint. So it all depends insane. on what self-image Pardon? I said that's insane. And whether they think psychopathy is a good thing to be called or not, psychopath. It's interesting that the term they use was prince, princess of darkness, because <laughs> if you think about it, you're bringing a lot of these dark things to light. And a lot of people don't want that to happen. So they will, of course, project its opposite onto you. Well, the the interesting thing about that was that in civil commitment, you're interviewing only the top 10% of offenders in terms of whether they're going to reoffend and have a diagnosis that would lead to reoffending. And in reality, 
the majority of that 10% I had said no to. They were they should not be civilly committed because they didn't meet the threshold. So the the strange part of the quote was I'd actually said no more than half the time, but uh, I guess the ones that I said yes to weren't all that fond of me. <laughs> I guess not. <clears throat> you have a towards the end of your book you get into a discussion of detection. Now recently there's been a lot of nonsense going around about how you can use Facebook and Twitter to spot the psychopath a mile away, you know, the top ten things so you know your husband's a psychopath. I mean, I'm sure some of them are based on some, you know, okay ideas and clues, but as you point out in the book, it's not easy detection. In fact, it's just about impossible, right? That's right. Uh, There are people who are, they're simply good actors, and they're good enough that they can fool people. And why don't we understand that? We go to movies all the time in which people who we know are acting cause us to cry or, or or to be afraid for them or to feel a variety of emotions. We know they're acting, but they seem so real at the time. And that's, But in real life, somehow people think they can tell who's acting and who isn't. But the research is very clear over 30 years that we simply can't tell. If someone is a good enough actor, the average person is not going to be able to tell whether they are lying or not. And there's studies also. Um, I was reading about uh, Adrian's, Adrian Rain's research. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yep. And, uh, and how he uh, basically succeeded in interviewing uh, successful psychopaths or people who fitted the profile but weren't in jail, weren't, you know, criminal as society uh, judges it. And then there were people in jail, and he did brain scans on them. And it seemed that they're actually even better than normal people in many ways. The successful ones have certain areas that, you know, um, you know are, they're, they're actually better. So how can you pretend that you can spot a psychopath? And they, they can be better at cunning people, at planning, at acting, at, you know... Seducing. Seducing, fooling others. I mean, we have to, I think it's important to, you know, actually let go of our own ego and pretending that we can actually be good enough to spot them. You know, all we can do is gather knowledge and protect our loved ones and, and, you know, yeah, learn from experience, but don't ever fool yourself thinking that because a person looks at you in the eyes, they're not lying or because, you know, they seem nice, they're not lying. That's very true. You should always be looking at what people do more than what they say. Uh-huh. Uh, and and uh, you should always be trying to separate how much you like this person from trustworthiness, from how much you can trust this person. And, and people don't. Because, and I think that gets back into the wanting to be safe. People want to believe that they can spot psychopaths because uh, is because it makes them feel safer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dr. Salter, is there anything that you kind of like want to rant about or uh, that makes you feel frustrated about the system, the society, your own uh, field today? Because we have just a few more minutes and and I'd, I'd really like to hear, you know, what you, what, what you rant about in your most frustrated moments. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I think you've heard some of it. I'm very concerned for where the field of sex offender treatment is going. I think uh, I think that many sex offender therapists are becoming advocates for offenders as opposed to advocates for victims who want to treat offenders so that they don't offend again. I think people are jumping into therapies that we do not know work based on principles such as they just want what everybody else wants, they just don't know how to get it, and if we help them have a good life, then uh, really they'll be fine. That Those things, that bothers me tremendously and 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 frightens me. Um, and more, and I suppose uh, because it's my own field, it really, uh, really hits close to home. So that really is the biggest thing. I don't expect the average person to be able to spot a psychopath. I just think we all need to be honest enough to realize that we can't. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people have difficulty. Uh, acknowledging that because they want to feel or believe that they are able to protect themselves, protect their families, you know, protect their children with their uh, preeminent wisdom and uh, that everything is right in the world and God is in his heaven and uh, good will prevail and so forth, and it just ain't so. Uh, Einstein at one point made a statement about what you can see depends on the theory that you have and if it's not in your theory you can't see it the problem with Pollyanna worldviews is that you don't notice the discrepant things you cover them up so if you I'm not saying assume everybody's bad on the contrary most people are good and they do good things but we always have to keep our mind open to the fact that that nice coach could be a pedophile because in, because you won't wouldn't recognize him if he was so make your get involved with the team. It doesn't mean you're uh, that you can have to pull your kid out of every single activity, but it does mean that you ought to go on the overnights. It does mean if, if the team is going to a long away game that you need to go to. It does mean that when they're younger, you need to volunteer uh, to serve as a parent liaison. It does mean that you need to get involved in those activities and not take it for granted that they are all safe. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. what people do. I was yeah. I was training at USA Track and Field two I think two days ago or or on the, I guess it was on Thursday and one of the track coaches said to me, "Will you please tell people to quit dropping off their kids for practice?" He said, I see that over and over, even with little kids, that they don't get involved, that they just assume that the, everything is legit. And he said, please tell people to stop just dropping off their kids. I say amen. I raised five, and I never left my children with a babysitter, ever. Uh, I understand. And that's because... Many people- have have child care for their kids, but the point remains, you know, get involved in everything you can. Uh, Stay alert. Don't make assumptions that everything is safe. Uh, Be there with your kids as much as humanly possible. 
I agree, and uh, I want to thank you from, you know, from my heart, because even though it was probably one of the most difficult books I ever read, um, I really, really appreciated your book, and I think, uh, I mean, it's been years since I've been quoting it. Uh, it was it was published in 2003, so 10 years ago. Yeah, so I've I've been quoting from it in articles for a long, long time, and uh, I've I've really appreciated. I mean, I love that part where you talk about the southern boy who uh, you know lies through his teeth, and he <laughs> tells you that he's been living a double life. All, you know, he says, "Don't you get it?" And, and I just I mean, I I quote that little thing over and over again because it's like people really think that they can tell when a liar is lying, and I don't think they can. I I can't. I'm lousy at it. I had a, we all are, uh, I had a neighbor come over and say, I don't worry about this, Anna. Uh, I can spot a pedophile. And I said, really? <laughs> because I can't. And she said, oh, sure you can. You've been working in this field for years. You write these books. You You know, you... You write academic books, you write mysteries about them, and sure you can spot them. And I said, you know what my 20, uh, 30 years has, has bought? I know I can't, and you think you can. And I truly believe that. I can't spot them any more than anybody else can, any more than a doctor can spot which patient walking in his or her office has AIDS. But doctors know that, and we seem to find it hard to believe. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, that's a big difference because unlike your friend, you know that you can't spot a psychopath, so you have a, somehow an advantage because uh, the friend who thinks he can spot a, a psychopath has a blind spot and is starting to build some thoughts, some reasoning on the false ground, mm-hmm. false hypothesis. So maybe one of the best ways to protect ourselves against psychopaths is to know ourselves better our blindness, our blind spots, our weak spots, our weaknesses, and uh, in order to keep our eyes open all the time. Yeah. I I would agree with that. Like it or not, there are good guys and bad guys in life, and yes, there are fewer bad guys than good guys, but you need to do all you can to protect your family from the bad guys, and that means looking at your own assumptions. You know you're the kind of person who's always trusting. Get a second opinion from somebody else. Look for what they do, not just what they say. When little anomalies start popping up, don't excuse them right away. And you're right. It comes from knowing our own blind spots. I think what you just said is very important, getting a second opinion as well. is not gossiping. When you're sharing data, when you're sharing observations, you're aware that you can have blind spots. You know, you need to talk to people, people who know that other person. And, and nowadays we've been, we're taught that it's, you know, just bad to talk badly about somebody, bad to ask, you know, questions, and that's just gossiping, you know, and they keep us isolated in that way too. I was talking with a very violent offender who kidnapped a psychologist in prison at one point, and he said to me, the first thing that happened after he kidnapped her was she said, I didn't see that coming. And he said to me, you didn't see that coming? Look at my record. Sometimes they are more surprised. They're as surprised as we are at the naivete. Mm-hmm. Uh, a sadist beat his child to a pulp, took him to the doctor, and said he fell down the stairs. The child, in a singular act of courage, said it to the nurse, 
we don't have any stairs. The nurse said, be quiet, I'm not talking to you. And turned back to the offender and said, what were you saying, sir? And I said to him, why did she do that? And he said, I don't know. He was as, he thought the jig was up when his son said that. And he was as surprised as, uh, as I was that she had said that. And that's the key, to know their record. And the only way to find out a record is to share information, to talk, to express your doubts, uh, to true. get feedback from other people. That's very true. If all of your friends hate him, there may be a reason. You <laughs> <laughs> may be seeing something that you don't. <clears throat> Maybe we're not clever enough alone, but with the, if we're a group of people, we might get lucky and spot one, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, and all the sign of a psychopath in prison, for example, in one adolescent facility, was half the staff thought he was extremely dangerous, and the other half thought he walked on water, and that when kids reported him sexually assaulting them, they were just making it up. When you have a split staff like that, very often you have someone who's a psychopath because mm-hmm. half of the people are seeing it or looking at his track record, and the other ones are being seduced by how he's acting. Aha, uh-huh. a clue. There is a very similar example in political uh, Poneurology, the book previously mentioned by Laura, um, that described exactly the same situation. Psychopaths seem to to split populations between the one who gets spellbound and the one that can see beyond the projected illusion. That's very true. That is very true. If you go into a situation in my world in a prison where something like that is happening, but the staff is really split, that's something you have to look for right away because that is a footprint of a psychopath. Yeah. Interesting. Dr. Salter... Thank you so much for being with us today. If you haven't already got it, listeners, you need to get our book, Predators, Pedophiles, Rapists, and Other Sex Offenders. Um, You'll hear a lot more there, clues, case histories, and as hard as it is to read, it it is enlightening because... It's liberating. It's liberating. It's not just that. It's a survival manual. Survival guide. How to. So thank you very, very much for being with us today. Thank you. We wish there were more people thank like you. you. Thank you very much. Well, there were more people like you. Let me thank you for the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you. Well, at least you're labeled a princess. <laughs> I suppose so, even <laughs> if it was a dark. I'm sure I can call oh, I love it. <laughs> Good night, princess. <Okay. laughs> goodbye. Good, thank goodbye. you. Bye-bye. So, that's it for another week. Um... Join us again next week. We're going to have, oh, we have another special guest on, Wallace Thornhill of Thunderbolts of the Gods fame. He'll be here to discuss the Electric Universe with us. So tune in for what promises to be another electrifying show. (laughs) Until then, pay attention left and right, and goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye.